Hello and welcome to Disseminate, the Computer Science Research Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wardby. Today we have another installment from the 2023 edition of CIDA, and I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Hamish Nicholson, who will be talking about his paper, Hetcash, Synergizing NVMe Storage and GPU Acceleration for Memory Efficient Analytics. Hamish is a PhD student at EPFL in Switzerland, and his research looks at how we can use modern storage hardware to improve analytical processing. Hamish, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. And I hope I pronounced Hetcash is right, right? I mean, that's, I can't mess this one up. Sometimes I mess the names and yeah, stuff yeah. up, but yeah, Hetcash is pretty, um, pretty, pretty easy one. Okay, cool. Right, let's get started. So obviously I've given you a very brief introduction there, but can you maybe tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you became interested in database research and specifically in how we can apply modern hardware to this area? Yeah, for sure. Um, so about myself, I'm a second year PhD, uh, like you said, at EPFL, working with Professor Anastasia Almaki. And I originally actually got interested in database research during my undergrad uh, when I took a course with Stratos Idrios. And by the second week, it was straight into very hardware aware optimizations like Radix joins and being TLB aware. Uh, and that just got me hooked. Uh, on designing software that is very hardware aware uh, for maximum performance. So that's that's, that's cool. Um, so let, let's let's dive into the to the to the topic of today, Hetcash. Um, yes. Can you start off by giving us maybe the elevator pitch for it, kind of what it is, and sort of set the scene for us? Yeah. So Hetcash is an approach for caching for scan-heavy analytical workloads, uh, specifically using heterogeneous hardware for query processing. For example, using both CPUs and GPUs. And so Hetcache leverages uh, both workload and hardware information to make caching decisions. So from a hardware perspective, it takes into account block versus byte addressable storage and the bandwidths of different transfer paths. For example, transferring data between the NVMe storage and GPUs or between NVMe storage and CPU memory. And from a workload perspective, it considers the selectivity of access to each, each page of input data, as well as observing the processing throughput of query execution. And by processing throughput, I mean if you're running your query on a CPU, how many gigabytes per second is the CPU consuming of input data? And so using this information, it determines how much of each column to cache on each device with the aim of avoiding caching more data in memory than is beneficial. So it's trying to use memory uh, more efficiently to get the same or better performance than existing approaches to caching. Okay, nice. That, that kind of leads nicely into then to my next question. That obviously, caching is not a not a new thing, right? It's as old as old as time almost. So, what are the the, the, the kind of the problems with other caching policies? Uh, yeah, caching has been around since we've had computers. Current approaches to caching assume that every cache hit is always a win, and conversely, that every cache miss is always a loss. However, with modern hardware and with workloads that are more bandwidth-oriented, such as analytics with its heavy sequential accesses, uh, bandwidth is more important than latency. And so when we have high bandwidth storage as we do today, for example, with NVMe storage, we don't necessarily need every data access to be a cache hit in order to get maximum performance. And so current approaches are generally frequency or recency based 
and they just assume that it's best to cache the most frequently used data, even if it doesn't necessarily improve query execution times. And so the heuristic that has worked for a very long time no longer works as well with modern hardware with these sorts of analytical workloads. And the other approach uh, to caching, uh, rather than caching, for example, uh, pages, uh, is to move entire objects and pin them in memory, for example, placing entire columns or tables in memory. Uh, But this can also result uh, in wasting memory because you don't necessarily need to have all of your data in memory to achieve maximum performance. You maybe only need a proportion of the data in memory. For example, if you have your uh, column made up of pages, maybe you only need like half of the column to be in memory so that the effective bandwidth to access that column is greater than the query processing throughput. Nice, cool. So yeah, it's something that the, the frequency-based approaches don't map well. And obviously the the other approach of just sticking as much as you can in, in memory is also is not ideal either. Cool. So you kind of also put forward in your paper that um, we, there still is like a, a necessity to store input some some data in memory. We can't just get it all um, off off um, off uh, MVMe. Why is this? So you're right, and so the benefit of memory uh, really depends on your workload. If your workload is very lightweight. Uh, and you're just basically scanning very large amounts of data and maybe doing a very simple aggregate, it's very hard to beat memory because your query effectively runs at memory bandwidth. And memory bandwidth is basically always strictly greater than storage bandwidth because when you're accessing data from a block device such as an NVMe drive, you first need to transfer the data from the NVMe drive into your memory. Uh, which uses memory bandwidth, and then you need to read it from memory to your CPU, which uses memory bandwidth again. And so it's not really possible to have your stored, your effective storage bandwidth be greater than half of your memory bandwidth. So if your query is particularly fast and runs close to memory bandwidth, then storage will always be slower. But these are very, very lightweight workloads. And most query processing workloads are a bit more complicated, may involve multiple joins or expensive or more expensive user-defined functions. And in that case, like the query processing throughput is generally quite a bit slower than your memory bandwidth. And these are the cases where you don't need to have your data in memory. Okay, nice. So yeah, so that kind of really illustrates how the the, the importance of the, the characteristics of the workload there. So I was obviously, we when we when were taught in school that we, uh, from class for university, that our memory hierarchies are nice and nice and linear. But unfortunately, we don't live in this world anymore, right? So how, how does all of the heterogeneity and sort of memory hierarchies these days change our assumptions about how we should do caching? Yes. So it's nice to have this abstract thought of the conventional memory hierarchy because it's quite easy to reason about. You go up the memory hierarchy and you have more performance. You have lower latency, lower capacity. It's more expensive, uh, but it's faster. But when we have, for example, accelerators that have their own memory as well, and GPUs are the prime example we use in this paper, that these accelerators can access both their own local memory, and they can also access other types of memory within the server. 
And to be to give a very specific example, uh, there is NVIDIA's uh, universal virtual address space feature, which enables you to, which enables GPUs uh, to use pointers that can point either into CPU memory or into their own local memory, and so they can directly access data from system memory. And this complicates caching quite significantly because instead of having you know, a linear hierarchy where you just move from one device to the next going up the hierarchy, uh, there's actually kind of like a fork. And so we end up with what I've been calling a bushy hierarchy, uh, where from storage, you can go into GPU memory or from storage, you can go into system memory. And then from the GPU, it can either read data from its own memory that's come from storage or it can read data that's in system memory. And so the reason this makes caching complicated is that we no longer just need to decide what to cache. We also need to decide where to cache. Sure, you can see the sort of the explosion and the possible paths that, that you can take through this sort of hierarchy now. Yeah, so it kind of, so I'm, I'm convinced. I'm, I'm really, I'm really, um, the, 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 the need for Hetcache has really been strongly motivated by, by these, these last few, last few points you've made. So, can we dig into the details a little bit about Hetcache? And can you tell us about, I know there's this sort of two main um, features to it, shall we say, the stage simulated transfers and the heterogeneity where caching. Let, let's start off with the stage simulated transfers and tell me how, what that is and how that works. Yeah. Uh, so let me first just set the scene uh, with some numbers for context for this discussion. And so today, uh, GPU is typically attached to a server using PCIe and using 16 PCIe lanes. And what this means is that with current generation PCIe 4, this results in about 32, gigabyte, 32 gigabytes of bandwidth between the GPU and everything else on the system. And in practice, this is slightly less than 32 gigabytes a second due to the overheads of PCIe transactions. And an NVMe drive is also connected using PCIe, but normally using four lanes. And in practice, this means we see about seven gigabytes a second of read bandwidth from an NVMe drive. And in our setup, uh, we were using an array of NVMe drives. And so we had a total of 86 gigabytes a second of read bandwidth. And this compares to about 125 gigabytes per second of memory bandwidth on our particular server. And these numbers will vary quite significantly across different hardware, uh, but we're using this kind of as a point of reference. And so with stage semi-lazy transfers, the problem that we're trying to solve is that we have storage bandwidth that exceeds the interconnect bandwidth to our GPU. So we have more storage bandwidth than ability to move data onto our GPU. And so our main motivation that leads to stage semi-lazy transfers is that during query processing, when you're doing a table scan, you often don't actually need to access all of the data. For example, if you had a query uh, over multiple columns and you were applying a filter to the first column and then doing some other calculations such as an aggregate on the other columns that passed that predicate, then you only need to access the values that pass the predicate on those other columns. But with NVMe drives, you can't just skip the values that didn't pass the predicate because NVMe drives are a block device. And so you need to read entire blocks from the device at a time because it's not a byte addressable device like DRAM or GPU memory. So leading into stage semi-lazy transfers, uh, our approach to do transfers from NVMe storage to the GPU 
is to do direct transfers from the NVMe drives to the GPU for pages of data that will be accessed nearly in their entirety and where we're going to need most of the values. And so we do we use NVIDIA's GPU Direct Storage API that allows us to go from NVMe to GPU and bypass the system memory for those sorts of transfers. Then when we want to transfer pages that will be more selectively accessed, where we're going to need fewer values than the entire page, we stage the pages by moving them from NVMe storage into CPU memory. And then the GPU can directly access the values it needs in DRAM and only move those values across the interconnect. And so the purpose of stage semi-lazy transfers is to reduce the amount of data that we need to move over the GPU interconnect which is our main uh, bottleneck when we're doing query processing on the GPU for NVMe resident data. Nice. So kind of following on for that, maybe the maybe obviously these, this works in tandem with the heterogeneity where caching. So how do you determine which pages you should, should take which path, basically, or which data should take which path? Like, well, how does that work? For which pages should take which path? Uh, we currently use a heuristic uh, based on the estimated selectivity for that page. And so we found that in microbenchmarks for our particular system, if you were selecting less than 10% of the values on a page, it was more efficient to stage the page in memory uh, than to directly transfer the page to the GPU. That's interesting that it was 10%. I guess that is, is there any sort of underlying reason why 10% or does it just kind of I guess, fall out of the microbenchmark, maybe. It just happens to be that. Uh, is there any sort of deterministic reason why? It gets a little bit complicated to get into the details, mm. uh, but the reasons are around uh, basically NVIDIA's bit of a black box. Uh, okay. And how... The, so the feature we leverage, uh, UVA from NVIDIA, uh, effectively bypasses the GPU memory, so the GPU can directly access pages, uh, can directly access effectively cache lines uh, from the CPU. Uh, but there is a bit of haziness around uh, like read coalescing, where if the GPU issues multiple reads that are close together, whether they'll be merged into one request to go over to the CPU and fetch those values. Uh, and so it's a bit murky to have an analytical model for this, Mm. Uh, although some people, I believe, have tried. Uh, and so what we did was we formed a microbenchmark to determine like what cutoff we would use. Sure, and that makes sense, yeah. I think that value uh, would depend uh, on, for example, like which generation of NVIDIA GPU you're using and which version of GPU uh, drivers you're using. And so I would, if you're trying to replicate that number on different hardware, I would suggest also running a microbenchmark. Cool. Um, yeah, great. So we've got stage simulated transfers in the bank. Tell us a little bit about heterogeneity aware caching. How does this work? Cool. So this plays in in the case where when we have stage semi-lazy transfers and we've actually moved, in some cases, we can move the bottleneck from the interconnect to the storage bandwidth. Because even though we're reducing the amount of data that goes over the interconnect, we still need to load the data from our NVMe drives into system memory. And we can, in some cases with very high selectivities, actually move the bottleneck back to the NVMe storage. And so in this case, it is beneficial uh, to cache 
the data that the GPU is going to be consuming uh, onto on the CPU memory uh, to reduce the amount of data that needs to be loaded from the NVMe drive. And we can do this, or th it makes sense to do this rather, uh, because the CPU has relatively higher access to the storage bandwidth, and so it doesn't need to cache as much data for its own processing in its own memory. And so we can use that larger DRAM capacity to cache data for the GPU because the GPU is relatively uh, memory capacity constrained. And we also do some caching on the GPU itself, uh, but we can't cache a very large amount of data. And so what we do cache on the GPU is the data that's accessed with very high selectivity uh, since those pages consume the most interconnect bandwidth if they're uncached. Just as a frame of reference, how much can you actually cache on a GPU? Uh, we set the cache size to 10 gigabytes uh, okay. because we have a 40 gigabyte GPU okay. uh, and you still need GPU memory for query processing as well as just caching. Sure, cool. That makes sense. Great. So we've got these these two these two th these two features, and you have implemented these right in a system called Protus. Um, can you tell us a little bit little bit about um, Protus and how you went about implementing these ideas in Protus? Yes. So Proteus is a database engine that my lab at EPFL has been working on. And Proteus is a compiled database engine, and we leverage the LLVM framework to generate and compile code for each query. Uh, however, uh, Hikmash was primarily implemented in plain C++, and the generated code calls into some of the C++ functions to request uh, pages be made available on different devices. Okay, was it, was it a pretty... I realize I just pronounced Proteus wrong. It's Proteus, right? Okay. Proteus. What, what does Proteus actually mean? Is it like a Roman thing? Like it sounds um, very like... So there have been a very large number. There's a very heavy Greek influence in my lab over the years. Uh, my memory probably serves me wrong. But if I remember, I think it comes from Greek mythology. And I think Proteus okay. might be an alternative name for Zeus. Um but fact check that before putting <laughs> Yeah, I'll double check that before we put that out. <laughs> cool. Um, what, else did I, what else did I want to ask? Uh, yeah, so on the implementation effort, how long did it take you to implement? Was it a difficult thing to implement or was it pretty straightforward? I mean, I have no familiarity with, with Proteus or how easy it is to, to uh, adjust and augment. So. Um, so different parts of Proteus are easy to adjust in different ways um, because... Proteus, before I arrived as a PhD, uh, was primarily an in-memory system. I had been working to add support for accessing device on persistent storage, accessing data on persistent storage, so primarily NVMe drives. And so it wasn't too bad to add uh, support for NVMe drives, particularly because in Hetcache, we're looking at every read-only workload. Uh, which makes our lives substantially easier. And the way I went about implementing it was reasonably uh, straightforward uh, because Proteus uh, implements the HET exchange framework, uh, from which was published a couple of years ago in VLDB. And in that framework, it introduces a couple of new operators, 
Um, one, there is the router, which is similar to like the classical exchange operator. And then the other one that's more relevant to the, this discussion is the memmove operator. And so what this operator does is it ensures that the input pages for a pipeline, for a query pipeline you're about to invoke, are in the appropriate uh, data, are in the appropriate memory location uh, for that pipeline. And that was primarily used for CPU GPU hybrid processing and to move data from a from CPU memory to GPU memory. And I basically hijacked uh, that operator uh, to call into the storage layer instead. And so be able to move logical pages that may be on disk or in memory into a specific location. Cool, cool. Yeah, just on a quick aside real quick, I've just quickly Googled what, Pro, what Proteus was. And it turns out he was uh, an LEC god or god of rivers um, and one of the several deities who whom, whom Homer calls the old man of the sea. So, yeah, he seems like he was some sea god, basically, in Greek mythology. Um, but, yeah, cool. There we go. <laughs> um, nice. Okay, cool. So, given that, let's talk about let's talk about the evaluation. Yeah. Um, what was you trying to ascertain when you were evaluating Hetcash? What were the questions you were trying to answer? And can you maybe just tell us about your experimental experimental setup and workload used and, and, and things such as this? Yes. Uh, so there were kind of two main questions we wanted to answer. Uh, one was how sensitive uh, to the selectivity of the staged semi-lazy transfers were. And the other is, in ideal conditions, how memory efficient our approach could be? How much less memory could we use and still achieve approximately in-memory performance? Uh, and for the workload, we were using queries from the star schema benchmark. And for in terms of hardware, uh, we were running on a AMD Epic server uh, with an NVIDIA A40 GPU, and we had 12 uh, PCIe 4 NVMe SSDs. Cool, can I just interject real quick and ask, what does a PCIe, I should have asked this earlier on, what does a PCIe stand for? What's the acronym stand for? Um, you know what? I'm going to Google that. It's something, something Interconnect Express. Okay. Uh, in the past, there was P, uh, Peripheral Component Interconnect Express. Got it. Cool. And it's called Express because there was an older PCI, um, which predates PCIe, which was older and slower. Nice. So they just tacked the E on the end of it, and we got the Express. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So, sorry, I interrupted you there. Did you have anything else to add on, um, like experimental setup? So, you say so you mentioned they used the the scar the star schema benchmark. Like, can you maybe tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Uh, so, the star schema benchmark uh, is intended as a benchmark to emulate kind of uh, data warehousing queries, mm-hmm. uh, and by its name, it implements a star schema. Uh, and there are a number of different query flights uh, within the benchmark. Uh, there are four query flights, and each query flight has a number of queries that are similar but vary in their selectivity. And it's meant to give a sense of uh, real-world-ish workloads uh, for data warehousing. Nice, cool. So let, let's, let's, let's talk about the, uh, the key results then. Tell me the numbers. Yes. So our two main results are that stage semi-lazy transfers can improve query execution times on GPUs with NVMe resident data quite significantly. So in the case of query 3.4, which is a very selective query from the benchmark, 
we can improve the execution time by 45% as we move the bottleneck for this query from the GPU. Then from the caching perspective, we show that when using both the CPU and GPU for processing, we can get within a couple percent of fully in-memory performance without storing all of the data in memory. So for query 1.3 from the benchmark, which is a fairly lightweight query that does little more than a table scan, we can use 25% less memory to achieve in-memory performance. But for query 3.1, which is more processing intensive, uh, we can approach in-memory performance without using any system memory for caching. And for both of those queries, we still use a little bit of the GPU caching, about 10 gigabytes, in order to get towards this in-memory performance. And, and so the key takeaway here is the importance of caching and cache policies uh, to be workload aware and to know which data is useful or not useful to admit to the cache. Nice. And so that's obviously the, the headline number there, 45%. And um, it sounds like you've really um, made the point that we need to care about our, our workload here. So I, I kind of want to dig on, touch on, like, are there any situations necessarily where Hetcache's performance is suboptimal? Like, or is it always going to be an improvement? Like, I know, I'm going to hit it here. Like, what are the limitations of this approach? Yes. So first of all, like, any caching solution, if your workload's never going to read the same data twice, it's not going to be all that helpful. And Hetcache is also not going to be super great when you have a very diverse set of queries, but which all have the same working set. And by diverse here, I mean in the terms of the selectivities of the queries and also the processing throughput of queries. So in this case, even if half of your queries don't need any data in memory, if, you, if a few of those queries heavily depend on memory, you're going to need to cache the data regardless to have the maximum performance for the workload overall. And so there won't really be a memory efficiency gain in that case, just because while it's useful for half your workload, the other half of your workload using the same data really needs the memory. And kind of on the limitation side, we currently, in our implementation, kind of assume that the columns are reasonably uniformly distributed. As from our planner, uh, we use the per column selectivity estimates and assume that they apply to each page. So if you had wildly different selectivities per page, the current implementation will struggle a little bit. But if you had good per page statistics for the estimated selectivity, it should still perform decently. And the other main limitation at the moment is that it's currently tabled to full table scan workloads and doesn't work with data skipping, such as skipping partitions or page skipping with zone maps. But this is actually something we're working on at the moment. Nice. Yes, I look forward to reading that paper when uh, when it comes out. Um, so you, I mentioned earlier on that this obviously is just totally read only. Um, would they? Like, how would it look like from adding some sort of rights into the mix, or would? Is the sort of workload we're targeting here just purely like obviously it's just analytical, right? So that typically is read only, right? But what if like how does like sort of ingestion ingestion of data and stuff kind of work, or is that kind of an orthogonal problem to this? Um, in some ways it's orthogonal, but not entirely. Um, in terms of ingesting data, um, if you're append only, uh, it's relatively simple. It's nearly as simple as being just read only. Uh, if you start adding updates and transactions into the mix, 
it starts getting a little bit more complicated as you start needing to think about consistency and data freshness and snapshotting. And I think it is applicable, but there would be substantial more, substantially more engineering effort uh, to make it work. Uh, something that I've been whiteboarding uh, with colleagues in my lab, because uh, I have colleagues who are interested in HTAP or hybrid transactional analytical processing, I'm trying to figure out how to integrate and create a buffer pool that works both well for transactions and well for analytics. Nice, nice. Have, like orthogonal goals. One yeah. is like, latency and the other is like bandwidth. It sounds that sounds that sounds good. So I mean, on on that as well. So obviously, you've run the the Star Schema benchmark. How would it? I mean, I guess maybe it was the reason why you chose that. I'm not not. It's probably the reason why you chose that one, right? But obviously, if you, did you look at like maybe doing something else? I mean, like using TPC TPCH or or those other benchmarks and see how it would fare on those, or would do you think it'd just be the same sort of outcome? Um, I think it would probably be similar-ish. Uh, the reason that the Star Schema benchmark was particularly... Uh, the reason we chose the Star Schema benchmark uh, was because we it has these query flights that mm. have similar queries with similar kind of like processing throughputs, but with different selectivities across the flight. Um, that was the main reason I went with it, is it, w- it was helpful to show that selectivity sensitivity. Sure, sure, that makes sense. Yeah, and I, and I kind of another thing that kind of springs to mind off the back of what we've just been talking about with respect to transactions is that obviously this focuses heavily on um, caching for like analytics and workloads. Would there be any benefit at all if you had the same sort of heterogeneous hardware? And we just and so let's just like say we're all TP for a second. We're not doing any of the big heavy stuff. Are there any sort of uh, can it be like adapted to that situation as well, and, or? Is there no sort of really obviously the the bottlenecks are in different places for that type of workload, so maybe this wouldn't be useful. But I'm just thinking if you had a transaction processing system on top of heterogeneous hardware, how could you leverage that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there hasn't been a huge amount of work of transaction processing in general on heterogeneous hardware. There's been a lit, little bit recently of some people. Um, there, there has been work on doing transaction processing on GPUs, uh, but it is reasonably tricky, especially with ad hoc workloads, because uh, GPUs aren't really as good at this kind of like task parallel processing. Um, but ignoring the merits of GPUs for transactions, um, I think it probably applies less because when you're doing transaction processing, you have to use the word again, you have a bit more of a heterogeneous workload and each, and transactions may be accessing like quite different data. And so the way you partition the work across your CPU and GPU might be quite different than in the analytical case. Like in the GPU case, I think a common ish approach for LTP workloads is to batch uh, transactions together and ship them to the GPU for execution. And so I think in that case, you existing approaches already have to worry about where the data is for each transaction. Uh, rather than worrying about how much of a query the CPU or the GPU will process, it's more like where will each transaction execute. Sure, that, 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 uh, that sounds good. 
Um, also, as well, can I say, I'm guessing um, Hetcash is publicly available, right? And I want to kind of obviously ask, or as a follow-on to that, um, is Proteus, is it purely an academic system or does it have any sort of use outside and, and is anyone kind of using it for anything other than experimentation? Uh, yes, Proteus, well, no. Uh, Proteus is purely an academic system at the moment. Yeah. Uh, and while it's not currently open source, uh, we are actively in the process of open sourcing it. Um, nice. So it should Proteus should be available in the near future. Sounds good. Well, we'll uh, I can update the, the show notes when when it does become publicly available. Um, cool. So yeah, um, my next question is, as a like, as a software developer, for example, how can I leverage these findings of your in your research, like? What, what kind of on top of that? What sort of impact do you think these findings can have for system architects, for software developers, and people working with databases? Yeah, so I think the main impact uh, is to inspire people to rethink caching and the storage hierarchy. And while the exact approach that we've taken this paper may not be directly applicable to every system in the world, I think it's important to realize how powerful modern storage is and to think of the hierarchy as less of this strict linear hierarchy we all learned in undergrad computer science, where you know each level is more performant than the last, but to think of storage media, including memory, in terms of its properties instead. For example, is it byte addressable or is it block storage? Uh, how much bandwidth does it provide? What is its latency? And I think thinking about storage in these sorts of Thinking about storage with these sorts of properties, uh, instead of as a hierarchy, when we get more interesting and relevant uh, over the next decade, as we get more interesting and niche uh, storage devices. For example, uh, in for example, I think Samsung has this hybrid DRAM flash byte addressable CXL storage, which is which doesn't really fit in this current storage hierarchy anywhere. It's like byte addressable persistent storage you can't just like slot that in as like ah that goes between memory and my nvme ssd cool so that's that could be a game changer right that works how like how far away from um sort of being available to play around with is that sort of so far is it just sort of rumored at the moment um it's one of those things that it's been announced but Mm. not when it will be available and if you have, I believe that if you are a partner with Samsung, you might be able to get access to this hardware for evaluation, um, but it's not publicly available currently. Okay. Uh, maybe, like, I don't know. This is pure speculation, but my guess would be in like a year or two away. Cool, cool. Look, look forward to seeing what impact that has. I guess, I guess kind of following on from that, I mean, it's hard to sort of predict this sort of thing, but do you think there are, uh, maybe this is it, maybe that is the game changer, but do you think there's any other sort of hardware or, or on the on the horizon that could really change the way we totally architect systems, like totally re- rethink everything? I mean, this probably sounds like a candidate actually, um, but is there anything else sort of out there that you think might be interesting? Uh, there is a couple, like one like broad class of hardware that's coming in the coming years uh, is CXL. And so CXL is kind of like PCIe, but better uh, with lower latency and which will enable uh, some interesting new devices. And particularly the one that people are very hyped up and excited about 
uh, is this idea of memory pooling and disaggregated memory or remote memory, far memory, uh, whatever people want to call it, where you can attach more memory to your server uh, by basically just like plugging it into a CXL slot or accessing it across uh, the rack for, that's in a, and it could be in a different uh, chassis or server. And so you can dynamically expand the amount of memory available to you. And I think this will be particularly interesting, especially because in future iterations of CXL, you'll be able to share this memory uh, potentially across uh, different servers. And so you may have shared memory pooling. I think that will be interesting as we're going to end up with kind of like byte addressable far storage. And I'm interested to see what, what people do with this. Plenty of interesting things on the horizon. And <laughs> mm-hmm. um, to kind of go in like, the, my, my next question is going to be, how easy do you think it would be to take Hetcache and implement it into an existing system? Do you think it would be pretty straightforward to do or difficult? It really depends on the exact system. Um, mm-hmm. so there are a couple axes at play here. Uh, first, whether or not the database is already designed to run on GPUs or not. Um, for a system that uses GPUs or uses GPUs and CPUs, I think that stage semi-lazy transfers would be reasonably straightforward to integrate. Uh, if the system doesn't leverage GPUs or other types of accelerators of memory already, then you know stage semi-lazy transfers are not really applicable unless you also want to build a processing engine for accelerators. Um, and kind of the second part is the execution model. And so implementing a head cache with a pipeline execution model is more straightforward as it's easier to observe how quickly a query is consuming the input data. And for the caching aspect, uh, it may be challenging software engineering as most current caching policies don't need to be aware of what they're caching or really higher levels of abstraction. They just need to know how often this page is used. Mm. So implementing hit cache may require providing the caching layer with quite a bit more metadata from higher layers than is conventional. I would imagine that could make the software engineering aspect a little tricky. Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess in the same breath, though, I mean, 40% potential performance gains is quite a attractive proposition to to try and to, to strive for and maybe probably is worth the engineering effort but yeah no cool and um, the next kind of series of questions i ask i kind of ask everyone and um, the kind of um like kind of like it's kind of like my stock questions but it's always interesting to see the diversity in answers across these questions um so the first one is what do you think well what was the most interesting and maybe unexpected lesson that you learned while working on hetcash so I think the most interesting lesson is that storage, or at least locally attached storage, is really quite fast. And in some cases, it's so fast, you need to begin looking at CPU microarchitecture. So when I was uh, working on this last year, um, I'm working on an AMD Epic Milan machine. And each of these CPUs is composed of four different chiplets sitting on top of a storage die. And so... There are four PCIe routes, one for each of these chiplets. And these chiplets contain the cores and their caches. And then the IO die has the PCI controller and the memory controllers. And what I ran into is that I had, I think, all of my drives sitting on one of the Numa nodes corresponding to one of the chiplets. 
and I couldn't get all my storage bandwidth. And I was going nuts trying to find a bug in my code, thinking like, why can't I get my storage bandwidth? What's going on here? And then after a couple of weeks looking at my code, I'm like, oh my God, it's a hardware issue. Um, because they're all attached to this one NUMA node, the way it was working was that all these drives were using the memory bandwidth from that local NUMA node. And so I couldn't achieve my expected storage bandwidth from that many drives because I was out of memory bandwidth on that NUMA node with the bias configurations I had. Uh, and then I was like, wow, um, chiplets are complicated. Um, <laughs> and storage is more complicated than I thought it was. And I went into a long, deep dive about how CPUs work and how PCIe works. Sounds like a fun journey, though. Uh, it was fun. It was a... Uh, it's, you don't really expect it to be a hardware issue when you're writing code. You always kind of expect that you're the one who's messed up somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, no, that's really cool. How long How long was it before you realized it was a hardware problem? Uh, I think it was like 10 days or like two weeks. Yeah, that's not too bad. I mean, at least you weren't like kind of at that, like banging your head against the wall for like months before you realized, right? So I, two weeks is not pleasant, but I mean, still, um, yeah. Could have been worse. <laughs> uh, yeah. Great. So, I mean, you kind of maybe hinted at there, like kind of you've been on this journey for a while. So from the maybe the initial idea of this paper to the side of publication, what were the things along the way that you tried that failed? And just maybe talk us through that sort of research journey in general. Yeah. And so the initial idea was how do we combine fast NVMe storage with GPU acceleration for analytical query processing? Uh, and so kind of the initial line of work we had started uh, was looking at compressed data and whether we should be caching compressed pages on the GPU because GPUs are pretty good at decompression. And that would mean we could get more data over the inter interconnect to the GPU. And we could also cache more data on the GPU and then decompress it on the fly when we do query execution. Um, and we kind of ultimately gave up on this idea because I got stuck in a pit of engineering uh, and ran into some other weird uh, bugs that I could not explain after a couple of weeks. And so I kind of put it on the back burner and shifted ideas. Yeah, um, put it on the backlog and we'll move yeah. on to this, yeah. It's something uh, <laughs> we may come back to in this, yeah. is this compression and GPUs. How long was this end-to-end -end journey then? From like, let's do this to this, let's publish. How long was that? Um, so I had published a paper at uh, Daemon 2022, um, looking at you know, like the, this NVMe storage and CPU execution side. Uh, and then after that, um, my advisor was like, you should submit something to CIDR, um, think about what you should submit. And so basically since Daemon last year, I've been thinking uh, that's how long the process has been. Oh, and cool. I've also started working with GPUs because uh, one of the senior PhDs in the lab at the time was uh, a GPU expert. Uh, and so having him on hand was uh, very helpful guidance. Yes, I can imagine. That's cool. And so where do you go next then with Hetcash? What's, what's in the store in the future? Um, there's a few things that are kind of related to each other and kind of not in some ways. One, at some point, I want to get back to this compression part uh, because realistically, in the real world, like a lot of data is stored in compressed formats in order to save storage. 
Um, and at the moment in Hecash, at least, uh, everything was stored completely uncompressed, uh, just because the overhead of decompression da- decompressing data on the CPU is like a pretty high uh, overhead. Uh, and then another direction uh, is potentially looking into network storage, especially as we kind of have these high bandwidth NICs these days and see maybe whether these ideas can also be applied to network storage and whether we need to like cache data uh, locally. And that's kind of like also kind of like looking more into like the cloud context with like disaggregated storage. Um, That's a very vague idea at the moment. Uh, And then a bit more concretely uh, trying to work on support for more than just full uh, table scans or full column scans and adding the support uh, for data skipping and taking that into account in the caching. Nice. Plenty of interesting research directions there. That was be a lot of fun to be had, I'm sure. (laughs) Great stuff. So, I mean, kind of building on that, kind of how do you go about sort of determining, determining like what, generating ideas of like where to take your research and how do you then determine which one's worth pursuing? Mm. It's a very difficult question to answer entirely. Um, So one of kind of like the source of ideas is like we, we work on like an academic database system, right? And so there are lots of things that are unimplemented until we need to use them and implement them. And so whenever we need to implement something, for example, a buffer pool, uh, we kind of like sit around and whiteboard things for a while, thinking about what assumptions people might have made in the past to design these components and seeing whether these assumptions are still true uh, for new or emerging hardware. And so we often find we get good ideas just by implementing stuff and seeing what problems or insights we find along the way. Um, For example, when I originally started my PhD, um, I had no idea what I was going to do. And someone pointed me at like, oh, we have fast storage now, like maybe write a join algorithm that's optimized for spilling to NVMe uh, storage if the intermediate state is too large. And when I started doing this, I was like, huh, the storage isn't the bottleneck for query processing for a bunch of these queries. That's odd. That goes against like the assumption I have in my head um, yeah. that storage is always the bottleneck. Um, and so kind of just like running into like insights by implementing things and seeing what happens. Oh, that's, a nice, that's a nice process. Um, I like the, um, the approach of sort of like having the brain trust as well of where you kind of get down. So, okay, now we need to implement a buff pool. How should we do this? That sounds like a really uh, enjoyable, creative process. Um, for sure. Great stuff. So, Mary, I've got two more questions for you. The, the penultimate one is kind of, I guess, <clears throat> quite high level, quite vague. Um, <clears throat> what do you think is the biggest challenge in database research now? I think that one of the biggest challenges is how hardware is becoming increasingly heterogeneous. And this is difficult because there's a trade-off between kind of like performance and portability. So like conventionally, if you're doing performance tuning on like say a regular CPU like x86 or ARM, uh, it's like reasonably straightforward. You kind of think about your cat hierarchy and like fitting stuff into memory or into caches. Uh, But when you have all these different accelerators, um, it gets more difficult to reason about things, especially if you have software that can run in lots of different places 
and ensuring that it's like performant in all of those places. Um, and I think hardware is only going to become more heterogeneous. For example, like Intel's taking this turn with Sapphire Rapids to piling on uh, Sapphire Rapids being the uh, CPUs they released a couple of weeks ago. And with this new generation CPU, Intel has piled on all these accelerators into their new CPUs. And this means that software developers have to take into account all these different features that may or may not be present on all the different systems they run. And so I think that we need to have kind of like new abstractions in order to use these accelerators because otherwise they're just like too difficult and time consuming to be worth programming for, even if they do result in more efficient or faster processing. And from a data movement perspective uh, specifically, uh, there was a really good paper at CIDR this year as well uh, called uh, Data Pipes, uh, which basically made data movement declarative and then underneath the hood would leverage these different hardware features if they existed to do transfers uh, the most, most efficiently. And so I think working on these sorts of abstractions to make programming for heterogeneous hardware easier is going to be uh, really important in the coming years. It's really cool. And now it's time for the, the last word. What's the one thing you want the listener to take away from your work on Hetcash? Cool. I'm going to cheat and say two things. Okay, yeah, yeah, go on. I'll let you off. Uh, first, uh, NVMe storage uh, is really fast and competitive with main memory for primary storage for coarse-grained accesses. So for scale-up systems, we should preferably be using memory where it's actually better for latency-critical or fine uh, for latency-critical or finely accessed data, and then just you and then leverage NVMe storage for data where the bandwidth aspect is more important than latency. And secondly, the storage hierarchy is only going to get messier and less linear over the next decade. And so when we have new technologies such as CXL remote memory and accelerators only getting more common, uh, we're gonna need a new mental model for thinking about the storage hierarchy. Amazing, let's, uh, let's end it there. Thanks so much, Hamish. It's been a fantastic conversation. And if the listener's interested in knowing more about Hamish's work, we'll put links to all the relevant materials in the show notes so you can go and check those out. And we will see you all next time for some more awesome computer science research.